Alright, welcome back to Healthspan. This is Michael. This is part two of How Not to Diet by Dr. Michael Greger. In this episode, I will be discussing how the rate at which we eat can make a huge difference for weight loss, the importance of the cephalic phase of digestion for weight loss, and exercise, and why it's important for overall health, but not necessarily for weight loss. So we're going to begin the discussion with the rate at which we eat, and also why solid foods are a lot more satiating than liquid foods. So we know that when we eat food in liquid form, we don't become so satiated. But as far as the mechanism, we know that eating food it sends a lot better signal to our body that we're full, and it's most likely due to a chewing mechanism. And he puts here that when you're chewing your food, it sends a signal that says, I've eaten enough that you don't really get by just drinking. And in one experiment, people were asked to eat pasta, chewing either 10 or 35 times per mouthful until they were full. And those who chewed 35 times per bite ended up eating about a third of a less cup of pasta than those who had only chewed 10 times per bite. So it's this idea of chewing your food that actually makes you more satiating, uh, more satiated uh, rather. And we know that you can't really chew a, a liquid food uh, unless it's you know very thick and that's one of the tips he gives is that if you're going to consume a, a liquid diet or liquid smoothie make sure it's thick and make sure you drink it through a, a tiny straw or something that Ben Greenfield does is he actually makes a smoothie every morning but he eats it with a spoon so that's something uh, I recommend is if you're going to have a smoothie eat it with a spoon or drink it through a small straw now how about the rate at which we eat People were given soup, but half were given small spoons and told, told to eat slowly, and the other half were given big spoons and told to eat quickly. And an amazing thing actually happened. The slow eating group not only ended up feeling more satiated, but they did so after eating less soup. They felt fuller eating less food. Now, prolonged meal duration can allow more time for our body's own, quote, I'm full society signal to develop before too many calories have been consumed and the slower we eat the more time our bodies have to catch up and as harvard's healthy weightless checklist puts it slowing down at meals can help avoid overeating by giving the brain time to tell the stomach when it's had enough food remember our our hunger and uh, thirst centers and pretty much all of our centers for sleep and everything are originating in our hypothalamus which is in our brain and when we eat there are certain uh, hormones like glucagon like peptide and peptide yy which are released from cells in our intestines and they end up traveling to our brain uh, via the bloodstream and these hormones they tend to tell our brain to have this uh, switch from i'm hungry to i'm full but this process takes some time and he puts here that this whole fullness feedback loop takes about 20 minutes to fully tamp down our appetites. So it takes 20 minutes from eating food to the point of our, our hormones, glucagon-like peptide and peptide YY, to travel to our brain to tell us that we're full and to tell us to stop eating. So this is uh, important because we know if you eat more slowly, you get the signal, you're going to feel full and you're, gonna, you're not going to overeat. So that's a, another tip I give here, is that the rate at which you eat is very important, and you want to consciously think about the food that you're eating and eat it slowly, 
and this is a problem in nowadays and we kind of see it like we always have food associated with our phones or food associated with television we're always doing something that is taking our mind off the actual food and we're eating too quickly and we tend to overeat now next I'm, I'm going to be discussing the importance of the cephalic phase of digestion so there's three main phases of digestion and cephalic actually means head so before the food even hits our stomach there are nerves in our in our brains uh, there's nerves that travel straight from our brains to our mouths and this is why we even salivate before we uh, eat something is um, the signal that gets sent to our brain that helps us prepare for digestion and it all begins uh, in our brains and to test the effect of this mind-to-mouth connection on our appetite you can insert a tube down someone's throat to compare regular, e- regular eating to slipping the same amount of food directly into their stomachs and removing the experience of the taste, the smell, the texture of the food left, pe- left people feeling significantly less full even though they ended up with the exact same amount of the foods in their stomach. And this wasn't just a psychological effect. Objective measures such as the slowed stomach emptying time prove that sensations from the mouth translate into physical fullness. So again, food was, instead of having it in your mouth and digest, digest, digesting it in your mouth, it was slipped straight into the stomach. And the food that, the people whose food was slipped straight into their stomach, they ended up eating a lot more and they got the ex- experience of taste and smell and texture removed and they, they still were hungry afterwards. So again, keep food longer in your mouth, chew it, and this will help with the satiety signal. And the cephalic phase, which again is the first phase of digestion, also plays a role in diet-induced thermogenesis, which is the calories you burn to just process the food you eat. And it costs about roughly 10% of the calories you eat to get up the other 90% of the food. So that could add up to hundreds of calories a day. And about half of them are due to just the signals to the brain that arise from contact between food and the inside of your mouth. And we know this because if people are tube-fed, diet-induced thermogenesis gets cut by 53% or more. And if you have people eat, especially fast, diet-induced thermogenesis gets cut by nearly a third within 15 minutes. So you don't get that to take full advantage of the effect of, of weight loss. So again, the importance of slowing down your eating time and chewing your food, this plays a huge role in weight loss uh, via diet-induced thermogenesis and via certain signals that get sent from your stomach to your brain. So that's the importance of the cephalic phase. And he has another tip here that another strategy is to choose different foods entirely and the texture of food can actually make a huge difference. And by default, harder foods are consumed in smaller bites, eaten more slowly and with longer chewing. So find foods uh, like, you know, raw vegetables or you know foods that takes longer to eat and if you put people in an MRI machine to measure how quickly food is drained from their stomachs you can actually see that thicker food tends to drain more slowly so even the process of of draining is slowed down with these thicker foods so in short we want to choose foods that take longer to eat and eat them in a way that prolongs the time they stay in our mouth So think of the bulkier, harder, chewy foods like apples, carrots, intact grains, 
eaten smaller thorough chewed bites and if possible extend meal duration so it takes it takes at least 20 minutes to allow the natural satiety signals to take full effect and if you're going to drink your calories make your smoothies thicker and sip them leisurely through a skinnier straw so that pretty much summarizes uh, the first part uh, of this of this chapter and I wanted to really focus on exercise and this exercise tweaks and exercise myths section. Uh, it's a long section, but I'll be discussing why exercise is not beneficial for weight loss, but it is important for overall health. And he starts out with the idea of this exercise quote myth. And this is the myth that exercise is just as important, if not more important than the diet. And though most people believe exercise is very effective for weight loss, it, it, it's, also, it's often been referred to as a myth in the scientific literature. And in fact, it's been labeled as one of the most common misconceptions in the field of obesity. Population studies certainly have found a strong correlation between physical inactivity and obesity. But the question is, does a sedentary lifestyle lead to obesity or does obesity lead to a sedentary lifestyle? And the, the fact is, it's probably a little bit of both. It goes, it goes in both directions. Um, but dozens of randomized controlled trials involving thousands of, thousands of participants have been published on the effects of exercise on weight loss. And how did it exercise fare? Surprisingly, physical activity was not found to be an effective strategy. And you want to think of it this way. A moderately obese person doing moderate intensity physical activity activity like uh, brisk walking uh, would burn off about 350 calories an hour and most drinks snacks or other processed junk are consumed at a rate of about 70 calories a minute so therefore it only takes about five minutes of snacking for someone to wipe out a whole hour of exercise so again you can't outrun or out train a bad diet this is a common myth and even in Jason Fung's how not uh the diabetes code book he doesn't put exercise as part of his uh ways to treat diabetes section in his ways to treat diabetes section because again one of the problems is uh well there's a lot of problems the first one is compliance there's a huge compliance issue it's one thing to tell people to adhere to some exercise regime but it's another thing for them to actually do it and this is you know a problem as as a doctor, we, we tell our patients to do something, um, but to get them to actually do it, it's, it's a whole different story. And a lot of times when we worked out, we have this quote-unquote license to eat. So he puts here, our pie-in-the-sky notions of, about the power of exercise may be used to justify an exercise of pie right here on earth. So again, working out gives us this license to eat. It's kind of like Oh, I worked out today. That way, uh, you know, you you make an excuse to give yourself more calories. And experimental psychologists took a group of men and women and put them on stationary bikes, and they had them cycle until they burned either 50 calories or more than 250 calories. But unbeknownst to the the experimentalist, um, they actually burned the same amount of calories. So they essentially faked this trial and they had both groups burn the same amount of calories but those who falsely believe that they burned off more calories on the bike seem to demonstrate a greater license to eat 
and ended up eating significantly more calories. So again, this kind of goes to show that when you work out, you're kind of like, oh, I'm, uh, I was good today, so I'm going to cheat on my diet. And we know this is, uh, this is not, this is not the right thing to do. Um, and after a workout, many uh, people were tempted to treat themselves for their uh, sweaty sacrifice. And to prevent this knee-jerk reaction, uh, we kind of need to make exercise less of a, of a, like, like less of a chore and more of a, something that we can integrate into our diet. And they did, uh, they did another experiment where half were told to go on either a fun walk or an exercise walk. And afterwards, researchers convert, convertly me- measured uh, movement as exercise group uh, reportedly served themselves a 35% more chocolate pudding than those as the movement as fun group. So again, because people saw this movement as exercise, they ate more food, 35% more. While as the the one who the group who had movement as fun, they ate less than this movement as exercise group. So you have to kind of reframe exercise as a play rather than work. And he puts here, reframing exercise as play rather than work may not only make for more sustainable regimen, but it actually makes us less likely to consciously or unconsciously feel the need to reward ourselves later at the buffet line. So fine exercise is less of a chore and more of this fun activity you can do with your friends or your dog or just do an, do a sport that you enjoy playing. Now, the next session is working up an appetite. Expending energy through exercise may not only predispose us psychologically to eat more, it also makes us hungry, uh, hungrier more physi- physio- physiologically. And as we've discussed, we've kind of evolved in the context of scarcity. So our bodies place a great value on uh, rapidly replenishing lots of fat stores. And calories in versus calories out can't be complicate, can uh, be complicated by the fact that changes on one side of the equation can affect the other side too. And careful controlled studies show that caloric intake tends to rise over time to match any increase in calorie expenditure, making significant weight loss uh, through exercise a lot more difficult. And I'll be discussing the calories in, calories out in just a few moments. So the secret to weight loss through exercise may actually be the sheer volume. And he puts here that at least 300 minutes a week to achieve appreciable fat loss. And we know that the average American you know, does not do this. In this, quote, zone of regulation where appetites become uncoupled from our activity levels appear to start around 7,100 steps a day, which we know a lot of Americans don't do. So the point is, it takes so much more work to exercise and burn off these calories compared to just eating less. I mean, again, we'll look at the equation in a moment, but you can't really out-train this, this bad diet. And that's that's the myth he's trying to he's trying to uh, underscore here. Now, as far as swimming versus um, other exercises like walking or biking, we know that buoyancy in the water helps take off some of this weight-bearing stress of the joints. And swimming actually appears to be less effective for weight loss when it was put up against walking and biking. And in one experiment, obese women were randomized to an hour a day of walking 
cycling or swimming. And six months later, the walkers lost an average of 17 pounds. The cyclists lost an average of 19 pounds. But the swimmers actually didn't lose a single ounce. In fact, they had actually gained weight. And we kind of think that because of the coldness of the water, um, this is why they weren't losing that much weight. He puts here that if you exercise in warm water, it doesn't boost your appetite more than exercising on land. And after the same workout in cool water, people can end up eating more than twice as many snacks an hour later. So it has to do something uh, with the water that is making them eat more. And again, you're not physically weight-bearing, so you're not losing uh, that much weight. Now again, we need to change this equation of calories in and calories out. Um, so that this is the equation everyone's familiar with. Body fat equals calories in, calories out. But we need to break this down a little further um, because it's a lot more complicated. So calories in, we can kind of break that down into food and beverages. This is everything we're consuming. And calories out, we can break this down into our metabolism, which is always changing, and motion. And then even motion can be further broken down into exercise versus non-exercise physical activity. So overall, we can see that body fat equals food plus beverages minus metabolism minus exercise minus other movements. So we complicate this equation and we know it's not always in versus out. There's other things going on here. And an increase in exercise can inadvertently result in a decrease in non-exercise physical activity. And when overweight adolescents engaged in an hour of moderate intensity exercise, they burned, they burned off about 286 calories. And within that same period, they would have burned off 80 calories just existing. So at the end of the hour, the exercise group had more than 200 calorie deficit, uh, which is not that much. By the, but by the end of the week, uh, the calorie expenditure gap had narrowed to less than 100 calories. So what was exactly happening here? The exercise group unintentionally moved less over the few days after a single bout of activity. Simple things like sitting instead of standing or fidgeting less can add up over time and we often eat away at the gains you make exercising. And again, this kind of makes sense evolutionary, evolutionarily. Think back to uh, caveman times. Our bodies are trying to conserve energy. And if you spend one day, like the whole day, trying to chase a woolly mammoth, your body tries to mellow you out over the next few days to make up for it. So we're trying to uh, expend less energy and conserve because this is how we were evolutionarily raised. And he puts here that over the millennia, those whose body fat failed to defend their fat stores were most likely to die, uh, were more likely often felled by famine and long winters. Plopped down into the land of plenty though, this genetic legacy becomes a handicap. Winners in the ancient fight against famine aren't today's losers in the Battle of Bulge. But like most handicaps, that just means we have to work a little bit harder. So again, the idea that maybe back then, storing fat and uh, not, move, not moving helped sur people survive through this famine and long winters. But nowadays, when we have so much access to food, if we just do the same like we did our ancestors, uh, this is going to end up uh, causing us gain weight and lead to a lot of obesity and other problems down the road. So the bottom line is, exercise for obesity is neither a myth nor a magic bullet. 
Um, sufficient regular exercise can indeed aid in weight loss, uh, just not nearly as much as most people think. And on a population scale, even a 1% decrease in body fat body mass index could potentially prevent millions of cases of diabetes and heart disease and thousands of cases of cancer. But on an individual level, the weight loss can provide can prove uh, disappointingly small. So again, remember, there's, there's another part of the calories out equation, which is other movement. And this other movement is known as NEAT. So you may have heard the term NEAT thrown around, and this stands for non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So this is what is going on when you're not exercising. Again, it's in the name. And NEAT is the heat given off by our regular, regular activities of daily living, like standing, moving, and fidgeting. And we can see how this can play a huge role um, when it comes to the calories out side of the equation. And NEAT deficit has actually been identified in, in obesity. And studies show how obese individuals tend to remain seated for about two and a half hours longer each day than the average inactive yet lean uh, couch potato. And normal weight individuals just tend to get up and move around more. And after feeding sedentary people with sensors that track their posture and movement, researchers were surprised to find that they, in fact, were walking the equivalent of seven miles a day. So this is, again, not exercise. They're walking around and they're walking about seven miles. And that distance was just split up into dozens of uh, little few you know, minutes of activity uh, throughout the day. And again, this can add up remarkably. Uh, those small movements can uh, add up to more than 2,000 calories a week. So again, this importance of non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And just by subtly moving around more, your body can drain off as many calories as pounding in an hour a day at the gym. So try to make a conscious effort to uh, add some neat into your daily activity. What I mean is you can... If you're sitting, you can fidget more, you can uh, you know, do the dishes, you can do stuff besides exercising to help you lose weight. Again, what are some other things you can do? You can take the stairs instead of the escalator. You can park at the end of the parking lot. You can sing, you can laugh, you can clean, you can do uh, yard work, any activity that creates muscular contractions. This is neat. Now, how about standing versus sitting? Sitting more than three hours a day, he puts here, may be responsible for more than 400,000 deaths every year worldwide. And again, he has a sighting for this. Um, sitting, however, is actually not this new smoking. Uh, this is this is kind of idea going around that sitting is this new smoking and we're sitting eight hours a day. But actually, tobacco is still responsible for up to more than 10 times greater uh, shortening of life expect expectancy, so smoking is still worse, but sitting is, you know, st almost as bad. And how about standing versus sitting for weight loss? Standing actually burns three times more calories per minute than sitting. Even if you're standing still, your postural muscles are tensed and stretched to fight gravity. So anything you do while you're sitting, try to do while standing, like watching TV or reading the newspaper or studying, uh, get a standing desk, one that can be, um, you know, easily taken up and taken down. So maybe you can study for half an hour standing and then the next half an hour you can do it sitting. So 
uh, try to take a try to take a break if you're if you're sitting for too long. Try to get up every half an hour, or every hour. Now, while the data on exercise for weight loss is relatively weak, the evidence supporting the overall health benefits of physical activity is overwhelming. So again, not good for weight loss, but good for overall health. For example, 40 minutes a day, four, time, four days a week, can improve erectile dysfunction in men, and being more fit can mean having more fun, all while reducing risk of breast cancer, colon cancer, diabetes, gallstones, hypertension, heart disease, and stroke. So pretty much all the diseases that are killing uh, everyday Americans. And exercise can actually help minimize bone loss that can accompany weight loss. And he puts here that a single exercise session can improve insulin sensitivity for up to 17 hours. So again, if you have problems with your diabetes, exercise can improve this insulin sensitivity. And one of the reasons exercise can be such a lifesaver um, even though we're not losing weight, is that it, it can help us uh, get rid of this uh, abdominal fat, this visceral fat around our organs. Um, and a systemic review found that even in the absence of weight loss, exercise may cause a 6% drop in our visceral fat levels. And we know how fat can be inflammatory and how fat can often lead to uh, the diabetes that I talk about in The Diabetes Code by Jason Fung. Now, he goes into the different forms of exercise, and he begins with HIT training. So HIT stands for High Intensity Interval Training, and this is sort of a fad going on nowadays. Everyone is doing HIT training, and the benefits of HIT for weight loss appear modest, even under more uh, carefully controlled conditions. And a, a meta-analysis of 39 studies found that people only lost about a pound of fat a month, which is no better than when someone was engaging in continuous moderate intensity activity and he puts here that high intensity interval training required about 40% less time of commitment which is good uh, so hit participants accomplished in about an hour and a half a week what it took uh, a medium intensity group closer to two and a half hours so again there's no change in weight but an important part was it actually had a decrease in body fat so no change in weight but a loss of a few pounds of body fat over a few months and one, one inch off the waist, uh, which is good. So if you enjoy HIT, which is again, you do like activity for 30 seconds and then you take a few seconds break and then you do it again. That's what HIT, hit, hit training is. Now, how about walking in general? Just going for nice walking. We know running is not for everyone. A lot of obese people can't run. Um, but walking, on the other hand, can be easy, safe, and sociable. And he puts here that Hippocrates event evidently called a walking, quote, man's best medicine. And pulled together, 22 studies of walking for weight loss found that an average of 45 minutes or so of brisk walking about four times a week for three months, three or four months, removed nearly six pounds of body fat and takes an inch off their waist. So again, uh, walking can be useful. And what's the best optimum dose? Again, the more, the better. So try to go for nice walks uh, whenever you can. And as far as the, the timing, is it better to exercise in the morning or in the evening? Or is it better to exercise before or after breakfast? 
And the answer is, more than a dozen studies have been published comparing amount of fat burned in a fasted state versus a fed state. And every single one found more fat was burned on an empty stomach. So this is obvious, this makes sense. On average, a single bout of low to moderate intensity activity before a meal burned off three or more grams of fat than the same amount of exercise after a meal. So if you're really trying to use exercise as weight loss, try to try to exercise on an empty stomach, you dip into fat stores and uh, you burn you burn more fat and you lose more weight. Now, when you work out before a meal, your muscles have time to resort to dipping into your energy stores and you end up burning uh, most mostly a combination of glycogen and fat. So this explains why burning more fat, you burn more fat during a fasted state, is that you dip into these, your energy stores, your glycogen, which is depleted uh, when you're exercising on an empty stomach, and you dip into your fat. So uh, that's something to take into account. Now again, nearly no obese individual meets criteria for exercise recommendations, and again, why? Uh, we we asked random obese people why they don't exercise more and when questioned these obese adults typically describe exercise as being quote unpleasant uncomfortable and unenjoyable so how can we kind of break this vicious cycle now the first thing to recognize is that it is normal and natural to be physically lazy again laziness is in our genes we have evolved to be lazy and the only way we're going to exercise and it's going to work long term is that if it becomes part of our stable, uh, lifelong habit, we need to integrate it into our, our own lives. So you need to restructure your surroundings to make physical activity uh, and figure out how to make exercise more enjoyable. Again, this is something Ben Greenfield stresses so much. Be Find ways to hack your environment. Um, make it so the fact that you are moving around so much, you're doing so much activity, that Going to the gym should just be an option, you know, integrate your exercise into your daily life and make going to the gym an option. Um, so again, do those things like take your walks in the morning or stand instead of sit, um, just the typical hacks you, know, you can do. So I'm going to end the podcast here. Um, again, what I wanted you to take away from is, from this podcast is, Make sure you chew your food um, slowly. Make sure you uh, eat more solid foods over liquid foods if you're trying to uh, have, a, have a meal. Um, what else? The importance of the cephalic phase of digestion. And again, um, those are the three things I wanted to stress here. The rate at which you eat makes a difference. Uh, the cephalic phase of digestion makes a difference. And the exercise, it can be important for overall health but not necessarily for weight loss. So I'm going to end the podcast here. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I hope you learned something. Um, Tune in next week for part three of Weight Loss Boosters by uh, his Weight Loss Boosters section of How Not to Diet by Dr. Michael Greger. I'll leave my Instagram in the episode description if you want to give me feedback. And I hope you tune in next time. Thanks for listening.